You could turn to Psalm 2. In our mini break from Romans for the Advent season, I chose to fill the two weeks with Psalms 1 and 2 because uh, Psalms 1 and 2 are sort of an introduction to to the book of Psalms, before you hear all the real struggles, before you hear all the real um, worries and cares of, of real people calling out to God, not in a proper way, but in an honest, raw sort of way. Psalms 1 and 2 have always been seen as a beautiful introduction to how we should, what we should make sure we have set first before we go to God with our cares and our worries and ask why and everything else. Psalm 1 last week was about making sure you're blessed if you're actually rooted in something, the one thing that actually matters, God's promises as he's given them to us in his word, in the scripture. Today, the other, the other thing you need to be rooted in is here, is that know that God is actually in charge of what goes on in this world. So if you want to know what Psalm 2 is about, the problem it's addressing is, is there on the screen. But the problem is, is that in a, in a world that, that seems to have gone mad in a bunch of different ways, we, we can sometimes forget that God has already appointed Jesus as the real king of the world. We can forget that. It can be, become an academic thing. And then we look around at the madness in the world. It doesn't matter what, what, ver what aspect of the madness you're thinking of. You could just think of stuff going on in the world it's easy to forget, to know in our heads, but to forget in reality that God has already appointed Jesus to be the king of the world. And we can, our whole Christian life, our whole mindset can sort of devolve into this totally defensive mindset. The world is bad, the world is evil, and we can have like a bunker mentality. Where everything is focused on going inward, taking shelter, hiding, being upset, waiting for Jesus to come because things are so bad like a, a bunker kind of mentality where everything is about hiding behind the walls, uh, staying away. Uh, there's no triumphant, we have the message of life and we wanna go out to tell people because Jesus's message is stronger than Satan's message. There's more of a mindset of things are so bad and you wanna go behind the walls. You want to take shelter. But what he's trying to, what God is gonna tell us in Psalm chapter 2 is that in a world God mad we can forget that God has already appointed Jesus we need to remember that he actually has so this psalm splits into four parts Psalm 2 there's 12 verses splits into three sections four sections of three verses each verses 1 through 3 is the problem that I've just mentioned we can forget that Jesus already reigns because of the madness going on in the world uh, the second part, verses 4 through 6, is God's response. What does God think about this? The third part, uh, verses 7 to 9, is the king who God has appointed. What does he have to say about this? What's he have to say about this? The, third, the fourth part is the psalmist's uh, advice about what you should do in response to this. And through the joys of modern technology, I see that Christina Johnson messaged me and says, uh, her granddaughter was born and her daughter is doing really well, and uh, the baby's sick with a cold, even though it was just born, but they're doing well, so uh, everything's great. New grandma, third time, third time around, so yes. So, so how about that? In living color, here it is. So uh, that's good, her baby, her granddaughter was born. Very beautiful, okay. Uh, so that's what the psalm's about. So let's dive in and see what is, 
and see that this is that this is true. Jesus is already appointed. God has already appointed Jesus to be the real King of the world, and I hope we can see that and be encouraged by it as we look at this. So the first section is the problem. We're all familiar with the problem. It's not a Christian world out there, right? It's not. Um, and it's so easy to be depressed, to be upset, to want to build walls. The first verse, so the psalmist is looking at this, just like you look at the world. You look at your newspaper or you look at the news, your app on your phone, whatever, however you get your news, you look at the news and you ask yourself the same sort of thing the psalmist asks. He has his newspaper too. He says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Or if you have the King James, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So the nations are conspiring. He said, why do unbelievers, the Gentiles, why, why do people who don't know God, why are, they, why, why are they conspiring? Why are they plotting? Why are they uh, raging? What is this, this obsession to hate God and want to go in the completely opposite direction of everything he stands for? What is with this, this thirst to not like God, not like anything he says, and to orient yourselves towards something other than God and the story that he's moving along. Why does this happen? It can be depressing. It can be upsetting. It can seem hopeless because when David wrote this, he's one king over one small nation in the Eastern Mediterranean and the entire Mediterranean world hates God, constant warfare. Uh, God's people have always been a minority people in a world that's hostile. And he's giving voice to this, this same opinion God is this, you can picture God as like the Bible story of God as being like this great conductor who's driving this, a train, the train of reality along a track that he's laid and he's chosen, and he's taking it to a station that he's, that he's chosen. But the, journey, the train journey is so long that people forget that God's driving the train, and he's taking it along the track, and he's going to uh, a destination and they end up thinking that they're in charge of the train because they're in, everyone's in their own individual cars. They don't see the train. They don't see where it's going. They just see their life and their compartment of the train. And all they see is their passenger car. So they make their own plans. They plot in vain. This is what the psalmist sees here. And he's saying, what's with this? What is going on here? Why does this happen? He says, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. All of this is imagery that you're supposed to like connect to, to life today and translate as necessary. Kings and rulers, we don't have a king. We don't have a king in America. No matter what you think of this president or the last president or the one to come, we don't have kings in America. Many nations of the world don't have kings anymore. Kings and rulers, you can port that over and say political leaders at all levels. And in our democratic context, the people who put the political people in power, who vote for them. Um, those people stay there by pandering to the worst elements of their constituency. They become what the people want. So kings and rulers rise up. Rulers band together, and they band together against the Lord and his anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed one? Who's the one that the Lord has chosen as his special envoy, his chosen one? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one he's chosen. And what do they want to do? What do they call the, these, these, um, 
these cords that tie us to God. No matter who you are, there's, there's a bunch of cords tying you to God, tying you to his jurisdiction, his authority. You know he's there because of your heart and your mind. What do these people call those things that are tying them to God? What do they refer to them as? Chains and shackles. Because to people who don't, so this is the problem section, to people who don't love God, all of this hardwired knowledge, God is there. His law is written on my heart. That's why I know uh, a basic version of right and wrong. And I know I do wrong. And I have an inward compass that's given to me by God that steers me this way or steers me that way. And so I know um, that God is there, even if I don't admit it. But to people who don't love God, the psalmist says, these are like, these are bad things. These are shackles. These are chains. They think, I'm in prison. God's holding me in prison. And I want to get out of here. I want to cut all of it away, break it all away. He's giving you this image of people, kings, rulers, and in our context, the people who put them there because we're in a democracy, doing everything they can to cut God out, to cancel him, to erase him. To them, God is like this oppressive, dark overlord, right? When you see this picture, you think, that's not a nice guy. To them, that's what they see God as, this oppressive, sinister ruler who's chained them up and shackled them with this constant poking of, I'm here, I exist, uh, I'm not going anywhere. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's made. You might not know about Jesus, about the Trinity, about uh, uh, the story of Christmas, but you do know that there's a God, he's invisible, he's eternal, and he's God, and he's there. You know he's there. You know at least that much, Paul says. But yet, to them, chains and shackles, dark, sinister figure, I don't want this guy. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, God talks about these, the same, using the same metaphor, he talks about the cords of love that tie him to his people. He's trying to bring them along in the right path, the right way. He says, I bound you with cords of love. I'm trying to teach you how you should be. But these people, the psalmist is looking at the world and he's saying, What's, why? Why, do you have this, why is God a dark and sinister figure? Uh, and they're angrily, in a rage, frantically, they're raging, verse 1. They, they're, they're conspiring together to rip the shackles off and smash them to pieces so they can think they can be free. So what the problem the psalmist sees is, as he looks around, he sees everything looks bleak. He looks around, everyone seems to hate God. Have you looked around at the world and think everyone's against God? The psalmist does the same thing. All the nations rage, they conspire, they scheme. God's like an anchor that they want to just cut loose and, and get away from. They want to cut God's shackles off and they just want to toss him away. I keep doing that to Janet's messages. I appreciate them. I already used it though, so it can go away. But they want to throw it away. And the psalmist says nobody respects God, nobody wants his law, nobody likes him. So this is, not a, this is not a new thing. David said this somewhere around 990 BC. You say it in 2023 AD. Look at the world. Why do people hate God so much? What is the psalmist's attitude to this? How should you think? What should you think about Christian life 
in response to this, because that things haven't changed very much. That's where we get to part number two in verses four through six. What does God think about this state of affairs? Christians are outnumbered. God's people seem outnumbered. Things don't seem good. Everyone's against God. What should you think about it? This is what God thinks. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So that's God's response. And that, sh that should comfort us. We look from our perspective and we see all sorts of awfulness, a world that seems to have gone mad, and it's tempting to just purely look here and have that, you know, that mindset of purely defensive with the picture I showed you where everyone's trying to run to the building to just hide and stay away from the world because things look so bad. But in heaven, God just laughs. That's supposed to comfort us. There's a famous, um, there's a famous um, moment in, uh, in one of Ronald Reagan's presidential debates. I think it was 1984. Uh, no, I think it was with Carter in 1980 where Jimmy Carter uh, made an accusation during a debate, and instead of just saying, that is incorrect or something, it's a funny moment where he said something, and Reagan just laughed, and he said, there you go again. That's sort of, it's, it's a famous moment. Well, whatever you think of Reagan, it was, a, it was a good response because it just, it just crushed Carter. His face was just like, it's like he's, the point he was trying to make is done because all Reagan did was make fun of him. He came up with his long list, and Reagan just said, there you go again. And Carter had nothing after that. That's God's attitude. He sees all the raging. He sees people trying to cut away from him. He sees hatred. He sees people saying, these things that tie, that tie me to you, they're chains. I want to get rid of them. And God looks up there, and he says, there you go again. Okay. And he laughs. He laughs. And then, after he laughs, God becomes serious and he says this. And this is supposed to comfort us too, because no matter what things look like here, this is what is actually going on. Verses uh, 5 and 6. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And what's he say? He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he laughs. And then he says, Okay, listen, no more, no more fooling around. This is how things really are. I've installed my king. You can do whatever you want. You can be upset. You can be angry. You can rage and conspire and plot. You can do any of that you want. But I have already installed my king. He's there. He's the real king. He's ruling from my capital city, as it were, in heaven now, but in Jerusalem later. And there's, there's nothing you can do about it. So how do you like them apples? That's the attitude. He's saying, this is what's happened. This is what has happened. And you can be as upset as you want. And then God says, essentially, you make me laugh. You're pitiful. All your, vain, all your plotting, all your scheming, all of that. Everything that happens down here that looks bad from our perspective, all the things in the news that upset you, all the things that used to, all the Christian influence that used to be here in this country that you remember that makes you upset or make you sad, God looks at this seeming reversal and God in heaven laughs. It says the Lord scoffs at them. It says he scoffs and means he has contempt. This is not... 
This is not a polite, this is not a polite response. It's not a politician's response. He scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them and explains the reality of life. This is the truth. My king now rules over all creation right now. I have installed my king. When was the king installed? We'll get to that in a second. The point is, God says he's in charge, no matter what it looks like from our side. When was this king installed? Jesus has always been the king, but there was a special time, a special place, where Jesus was revealed to be king in an unmistakable way, in a way that changed the world, that changes reality, where nothing can ever be the same again. There was some dividing line that happened in human history. There was a before and there's an after. When was Jesus publicly installed as king so that now God can say, there, it's happened. I've installed my king. Now the king's going to speak. The third section. So God says this, and then now it's like, as God is saying that I've installed my king, it's like the king who he's installed raises his hand and says, hold on, I, I, I want to I say something real quick. And so in verses 7 through 9, the king whom he's put in place, the king has something to say. So the, the, the speaker shifts. The psalmist spoke, then God spoke in verses 4 through 6, and now the king is going to speak in verses 7 through 9. He says, listen, uh, I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. This is the king speaking. I'll tell you all what he told me. He's talking to believers who are wondering about the problem, wondering about the world that seems black and bleak and everything else. And the king pipes up and says, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to proclaim uh, the decree. Oh, Samuel, I think uh, there's a delivery back there. Could you get it? Yeah, for Mark. Yeah, that wasn't part of the sermon. Okay, so um, this is what he says. Uh, I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He, meaning God, God said to me, the king says, uh, you are my son. Today I've become your father. What day, on what moment in time was Jesus installed as king so that the world can, can see he is who he is? There was some penultimate moment where that happened. He's always been the king. He's always been the son. He's always been Jesus. But there was a moment where, bam, where now God can say, this is your king. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 13 that that's when Jesus ascended back to heaven, was raised from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and sat at the Father's side. Paul said that's when this promise was fulfilled, where the Father's declaring, this is my son, not I've made you and created you today, but this is my son. Today I've become your father. This is who he is at his ascension. So this whole thing is a prophecy of what Jesus, it's all a prophecy of Jesus and what he's come to do long before. So Jesus says, Jesus says, this is what the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. And then he talks about what, what his mission is supposed to be. The father told him, ask me and I'll, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. 
You'll break them with a rod of iron and you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Have you ever had a plate or a pot or something break and it drops, it just cracks and breaks into all these different pieces? All of this is, is imagery about how this king is going to rule over everything. He says, uh, you'll, break them in you'll break them with a rod of iron. How does Jesus do this now? How does Jesus rule over people? In Revelation, in three places, they translate it as not, not, not uh, break them with a, rod or, out of, with a rod of iron, but rule over them with a rod of iron. How does, how does Jesus rule over people now? With the, with the gospel, changing your heart from the inside. Going from being a slave to sin to a slave for righteousness, a slave for Jesus. Now, Jesus rules through the gospel in a very indirect way, through little churches and little communities here and in Turkey, in Japan, in South Africa, and, and in Bangladesh, and in a million other places besides. Now, Jesus rules with the gospel, but there's coming a time when Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish his rule by force here in a physical way. And Revelation chapter 19 is a picture of that. The point that we need to remember here is that Jesus tells us himself, the king himself says, I'm the king. This is what the father told me, I'm the king. And he said, all of this is going to happen and I'm gonna set everything right. Not just, I'm not just going to make Israel your inheritance, I'll make the nations your inheritance. God has people of Israel. He also has a whole bunch of Gentiles who he's going to bring together to be, in the end, after everything's over, one flock with one shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 16. Ezekiel 34, we read this morning, shows him gathering the people of Israel and being his shepherd. Jesus in John 10 says, yes, them, and I'm going to gather some other people too, I'll bring the two people together. So eventually, in the end, when everything's taken care of, one flock, one shepherd, one people, the nations will be my inheritance. So no matter how bleak things look as we look at the world, this is what's going to happen. Jesus, the king, says, I'm going to set things right. And so now the last part, the psalmist's advice in response to this, this problem. What advice does the psalmist, how does the psalmist respond? There's a problem. Things look awful. Everyone hates God. Why do they do this? God responds. The king pipes up and has something to say. Now what's the psalmist do? How does the psalmist respond? How should we respond? What should our attitude be? Does the psalmist have an insular attitude of hiding inside the walls, whether the church is 20 people or 50 people or 500 people? Do we just hunker down? and wait for Jesus and sort of just try and hold on, you know, a purely defensive mindset? Or is it more, let's go tell people about this message? What does the psalmist say? His plea to unbelievers is to choose to follow the king. He doesn't, he doesn't, you have to imagine his tone. So he's not angry, he's not condescending, He's, he's like pleading in verses 10 to 12. He's pleading with people, with these people who are trying to cut God away. He pleads with them. He has a kind tone. He has a caring tone. He says, therefore, this is what the psalmist says, you know, in light of everything that I've just been reminded of and I've heard, 
You kings, be wise. And he goes on this list of advice in verses 10 to 12. Be wise. Do the logical thing in light of what God says and what the king says. Why don't you stop trying to cut away all these cords and choose, choose to follow the king instead? He says, be warned. Um, do it now while you can. He says, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule. Shift from being some militant sovereign citizen weirdo in God's kingdom to being a loyal citizen instead by choosing and loving Jesus and his message. He says, kiss the son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to destruction. Submit to Jesus as your king. Submit to Jesus as your king. The point that I want to get at that I want us to see is that the psalmist responds by going out and wanting to tell people, you all need to stop that. He doesn't respond by saying, I can't believe what this world's coming to. And he just goes and hides in the corner and you know shuts the door and installs an extra deadbolt. That's not his attitude. He doesn't go around saying, this isn't the way it used to be. He says, okay, hey, you kings, be wise. Be warned, even though God's people are a small group of people surrounded by a lot of hostile folks. They, the psalmist still goes out and says to the kings, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, celebrate his rule with thanksgiving. This is not a, an insular attitude, and that's what God wants us to see. It's so easy to be depressed about the state of the world. The psalmist had this, could have had the same attitude too. But God wants us to know that it, even though it's easy to forget that Jesus has already been installed as king at his ascension, he has been. And we need to remember that. And then live like it's actually true. Look at the last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is love and grace. He said, blessed are, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Do you want joy? Do you want happiness? Do you want a God-given inner joy and happiness? Do you want that? Then take refuge in him, in his son, in his son, the king. Refuge. Think of all the, what, think of all the words that come to your mind about what's it mean to take refuge. See, safety, shelter, security in the one who you used to hate. Maybe you still hate, but he's still offering shelter, sanctuary, safety. This is God's love. Undeserved, unearned, freely offered. Not because he's obligated, but just because he wants to. The psalmist's last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's, it's an invitation to people who hate God, to be wise, be warned, and choose to love and submit to Jesus as king. It's not going and hiding inside and installing an extra deadbolt. It's not putting a ring doorbell camera on so you can make sure you always know who's coming to your door because you're afraid because it's a non-Christian world. It's a mindset shift. It's a total mindset shift. So we have the problem in a world gone mad, we can forget that God has already appointed Jesus to be the king of the world. What does God want us to do? What's this passage teach us we should do? Teaches us to shift our mindset, which is really hard, especially for some American Christians. 
shift our mindset from defensive, things are so awful, shift from being defensive. Because Jesus is the king right now, at this very moment, be about the gospel and stop being distracted by what goes on here. Don't be an Eeyore Christian. I should have just put that there. Don't be an Eeyore Christian. Eeyore would like to cross through it. Not him. Not him. Stop being American Christians who are distracted about and depressed about local circumstances here in 2023. This insular, hiding inside the building, this is not the way of Jesus and the apostles. Outnumbered, um, facing opposition. Instead, they were outward focused. They had joy. They weren't, let's get in here and hide and bolt the doors. They were, we have a message, it's a message of life. No matter how small or large their congregations were, they were about that message and tried to push the message and did push the message. We have a king who's installed in Zion right now. So this is a mindset shift. None of these truths are, are revolutionary things to Christians. Have I said anything today from this psalm where you're like, I never knew Jesus was king. Of course you know Jesus is king, but a mindset shift to echo what the psalmist says, the psalmist felt. The guy who asked the questions in verses 1 through 3 isn't worried. He's unfazed when you get to 10 through 12 because he knows he's dealing with confused and angry people. And he doesn't tuck into his shell or hide behind a wall. He's about the gospel. And he tells folks to take refuge in God. If they want to be blessed, if they want joy, light, happiness, those aren't shackles. Those are cords of love that he's given to show you he's there that you can follow and, 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 and follow and lead to him and to his son and to his gospel. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what he wants us to know. This mindset. Instead of being depressed and upset, because Jesus is king right now, be about the gospel and stop being distracted about what goes on here in America in 2023. Because our king is ruling, and this train is going along the track he laid to the station that he's established and built and chosen, and it's going to get there. It's going to get there. So let's live like it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace, your kindness. Help us to live like we love you. Help us to live like your son is installed as king right now at this very moment. Help us to change our lives, to give us a mindset shift from defensive and apprehensive to joyful and triumphant, marching out and waving the Jesus flag uh, as best we can in the places where you've put us individually and as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.